got your Bibles, turn to. You know what? I would start at the beginning, but I think I need to go further back. Let's go to Acts chapter 18. I want to talk to you this morning about Paul's arrival in this city of Corinth, and then we'll move to 1 Corinthians and work through the first nine verses together this morning. How many of you have ever studied the book of 1 Corinthians in depth before? Let me see your hands. All right, you guys know what you're in for. Those of you who have not in depth studied the book of 1 Corinthians, you are in for a treat. This book is, I mean, this study guide is fatter than our study guide for Romans. 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, the theological, systematic depth of this book will grow you in your faith, in your understanding of the gospel, but it will also help you see that people are people and have been people forever. How many of you heard a pastor sometime, somewhere say, if we could just be like the church of the first century... They had never read the book of 1 Corinthians. This is, I love, this is my favorite book in the New Testament because this, there is so much hope here for us. One of the reasons we sang this song is they're hoping up these days to forgive someone like me. Yeah, if God is sanctifying this people, we are a sanctified people. This church is jacked up. Paul spent, we're going to see, 18 months, a year and a half, planning the church. Then he goes off to Ephesus. And within a year, he is writing to them, saying, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing? In just the first couple chapters, we're going to see all matters of rank, sexual immorality happening in the church. Christians are suing one another. Uh, I mean, it is just a mess. Uh, when we get to chapter 11, there is even a group of people. Somebody, you know, there's a, we get a lot of pressure around here because, you know, we're Reformed, so we have to have real wine at communion. Evidently, that's a Reformed thing. But there's a reason we don't have real wine at communion here. Because I know a couple of you, and we'd be like 1 Corinthians 11. <laughs> You'd be in the corner over here going, what's he talking about? <laughs> They're getting drunk off communion. Why this church is just, it's going to make you, we're going to feel so much conviction as we grow through 1 Corinthians. But this book is also going to, it's going to kind of make you feel pretty good about yourself uh, in, in a lot of places. So Acts chapter 18, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, I love you and I thank you for the time we get to spend Today in your word. And Lord Jesus, it is time well spent. And I hope everyone here is as excited as I am to be in your word this morning. Jesus, Father, I know about Paul's time going to Corinth. And I know these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians we're going to be going through today. Lord Jesus, bring out of me what you were bringing out of me in my room yesterday. As I was doing my final review, Lord Jesus, help me to preach your word and may your word encourage uh, and convict your people. Uh, Father, uh, Lord, may, may the thanksgiving in us 
today as it is in Paul and 1 Corinthians 1. May it just well up within us as we reflect upon your grace that you give. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So you guys, right before we start, give my wife a good big fat hug this morning sometime when you see her, but, and just go ahead and tell her. Just say, Sarah, I love you. But Brent can't be in layers like that when he's preaching. <laughs> Are you trying to kill your husband? He looks good, but this is not going to go well. I'm sweating already. Acts chapter 18. <laughs> After this, Paul left Athens. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, in chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas in the church in Antioch, they see God's hand on Paul and Barnabas and send them out. Lay their hands on them, pray over them, and send them out to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to plant churches. Church planning has always been a gospel thing that God has been doing from the very beginning. And Acts and, uh, and Acts, Paul and Barnabas are kind of our prototype church planners that we find in the book of Acts, although we meet several others like Timothy and Simon. Silas and others as we're going to be moving through. Uh, chapter 17 doesn't bear any weight on Corinth, but it is one of my favorite chapters in Acts because that's the big Mars Hill sermon of Paul. That's when he goes into the Areopagus. He's in Athens, this Greek uh, wonder powerhouse, all the history, all the philosophy, all the architecture that had, uh, I mean, really, even though the Romans had, Romans had all the power, it was the Greeks that had all the influence on the culture. If you ever see the word Hellenism, that's what that word means. Greek culture uh, was purveyed upon even those uh, other uh, civilizations, they were in power, but the Greek culture was dominant, uh, even though they weren't in power any longer. Paul goes up on this Mars hill to all these philosophers, and he sees all these statues of all these different gods, because if you know anything about Greek culture, man, lots of gods, gods for everything, beauty, gods for war, gods for love, gods for peace, gods for everything. They were so superstitious, the Athenians, that they even had a statue that they had erected, and the inscription said, to the unknown God. I mean, here's just what I want for all of us. To not only have the courage to speak gospel words when we have the opportunities, but to have the kind of Holy Spirit empowerment and wit uh, that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul. Paul looked at all these great philosophers, and he said, Oh, I see you're very religious. You even have a statue to a God. You were afraid you were going to miss one and make that God mad. So you put a statue up to a God that you don't even know. Well, I know this God. Let me tell you about him. His name is Yahweh, and his son Jesus is the Messiah. And he preaches the gospel. And, of course, some hate him for it, but some believe. That's how chapter 17 ends as we move into chapter 18. And this is going to be the way it is with you and I. 
You know, we get in here and we get into God's word and we get all amped up and we get excited and then we go tell somebody about Jesus and they don't believe or they make fun of us or they ridicule us or they call us some name like an old-fashioned bigot, nitwit, whatever the name is and we get canceled on social media and they take back all their likes and all that stuff. And we think, oh, well, what did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. Not everybody's going to believe, but it is still the call of God upon us to use our words and to have the courage because not everybody's going to believe, but some will. We're going to see that as Paul moves into Corinth. Okay, five minutes of nothing that had anything to do with Corinth. 18, chapter 1. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. Now let's talk about this city for just a second. Because you need to know about Corinth. Because guess what? We are living in modern day Corinth. The parallels between Corinth and where we live in 2023 are, are you're, you're, I mean, wow. It's, that's Looney Tunes sound effect day, I guess, at four points. Boy, oh, 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 oh. Corinth had a long history of being a civilization. And all this is found in the introduction of your study guides. It had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. But as Rome was taking over the known world, uh, the, the city that will be known as Corinth, they, they were a Greek city-state. They got other Greek city-states to join them. and They fought against Rome, and they were thoroughly defeated. And for a hundred years, this city lay bare. Until a guy you may have heard of, Julius Caesar, 44 BC, he became uh, kind of, you know, he was part of that triumvirate, the first triumvirate with Pompey and Cassus, but, but he ceded power from them and he kind of became the first guy, even though Augustus is kind of the first emperor, really Julius Caesar was kind of the first emperor. So Julius Caesar sees the geographic benefit of this city that's laid waste for 100 years, and in 44 BC, that's... Less than 50 years before Jesus is born, Corinth becomes a Roman city and it's rebuilt. And the reason Caesar rebuilt it is because it, had, it, it was able to have a port on each side. It had a northern seaport and a southern seaport. So two ports, double the trade, double the people. Oh, by the time of Jesus, just 50 years, there were 100 thousand people living in this city that had laid waste for a hundred years. Now, let's talk about that. Because when people found out this is going to be a Roman city and they're rebuilding it and it's going to have two seaports, they flocked for the business and the trade. And from the beginning, think about it. Those of you who have seen gangs of New York, there's no people on the ground already there who consider themselves the patriots. No, everybody that comes back to Corinth is new. So from the very beginning, it's this melting pot with no real traditions of a city, just all the, the, the thoughts and cultures and religions that everyone is bringing to it. It, it truly is a center of pluralistic relativism, what's right for me is right for me. It may not be right for you, right? And everybody was just kind of getting along the best they could. But even in the midst of this, Greek culture, Hellenism still wins out. And on the high place, 
called the Acro-Corinth in the city. It's still there today. You can still visit. Lots of people make pilgrimage to it. And by the way, if you ever wonder what are these high places, when you're reading the Old Testament especially, the highest point in the city, the ancients believed, the closer you are to the heavens, the closer you are to the gods. So that's where they built all their places of worship. So on this Acro-Corinth in the city of Corinth, they built a temple to the Greek goddess Aphrodite. If you don't know anything about Aphrodite, just listen to a couple Red Hot Chili Pepper songs. They sing about her all the time. That's true, isn't it? <laughs> so Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty. So part of the worship, part of the rituals and rites of the, the temple of Aphrodite, the first thing they do is they hire a thousand priestesses. Priestess is a nice word for a temple prostitute. And every night to perform the rituals of Aphrodite in the city, a thousand of these priestesses would descend upon the city. So within 50 years, you've got this pluralistic, relativistic, melting pot of people who are active in all kinds of sexual debauchery, all kinds of sexual rites and rituals and worship of the greatest temple in their city. This is what Paul is walking into. There was actually, the Greeks actually coined a term for the Corinthians. Listen to this. Do you know who the Greeks were? Right, there are perverts and then there are gay perverts. The Greeks are the gay perverts. You like that? No. <laughs> the Greeks, though, coined a term for the Corinthians. Corinthiazine. It meant to live like a Corinthian. That is what the, the whole world is looking at Corinth going, man, you guys are nuts. You just do whatever. It doesn't make you. Nothing fake. You just do whatever you want whenever you want to. To live like a Corinthian. This is where Paul is walking into. This is the city in which Paul will now proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes into Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila. A native of Pontus. Recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul, when he goes into a new city, he's always looking for a pre-existing connection with somebody somewhere. It's why he always starts his proclamation of the gospel in the synagogues. Because he knows the Jewish people know the Old Testament. And one of Paul's favorite thing to do is to show Jews how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those messianic prophecies that was already in their minds. So the first thing he does is he, he finds this Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And if you don't know anything about Aquila and Priscilla, know this. They are found throughout Scripture uh, six different times, six different places. And they are beloved by Paul because they help Paul so much. In fact, when we get to the end of Corinthian letter, we're going to see them in Corinth. Uh, uh, the church, it, the church starts in a house we're going to see right next to the synagogue 
once they're kicked out of the synagogue. But at the end of the Corinthian letter, we're going to see that the church has grown so much that they're meeting in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says of Priscilla and Aquila that they risked everything to save my neck. They, uh, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, they are a great help to me. Priscilla and Aquila are this, are this man and wife ministry couple uh, that's already here, uh, but part of the church, helping the church uh, after uh, the, the diaspora of Rome ended, that Claudius enacted, they went back to them, they helped the church of Rome there. They were there when uh, Paul goes to Rome on his house arrest and they served him in the prison. This is a ministry couple and this is the way ministry should look like. Husbands and wives together benefiting the church, proclaiming the gospel and pushing the gospel forward. That's who Priscilla and Aquila are. And Paul meets them for the first time here in Corinth and he stays with them because they're tent makers. Now, if you ever have this picture of Paul in your head where he's sitting behind, behind a, uh, a, a singer, you know, sewing machine just doing this kind of stuff, that's not really what tent makers in the ancient world did. They, uh, they took hides and they turned the hides into usable leather and usable canvas to make the tents out of. So this is the work that they, it was hard work. Uh, tedious work, time-taking uh, work. But this is what they all did to support themselves because there was no church in Corinth at this time. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Now, we meet Silas and Timothy Two chapters ago, we meet Timothy at the beginning of chapter 16 of Acts. We know he becomes a son in the faith of Paul. He, two entire letters are written just to Timothy who is left in Ephesus for a time to, to raise up leaders there in the church. Silas, we meet also in chapter 16 of Acts. He was the one in the Philippian prison with Paul when they begin to worship and the, the prison uh, uh, jail opens up and the, the jailer's going to kill himself because he's responsible for all these prisoners who are now free. But Paul says, don't kill yourself. And he proclaims the gospel. And the Philippian jailer gets saved, him and his entire household. The gospel is power, no matter where it's delivered. Whether it's in the prisons, whether it's in the synagogues, as we're going to see, whether it's in the city streets, there is power in the gospel. The only power that can change the heart of man. Oh, if we, if we can get this as we study 1 Corinthians, there is no one out of the reach of God if we will just present the gospel. There's no one out of the reach of God. Silas, Timothy arrived. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, as some will always do, I don't want you to be ignorant, Paul so often says to Christians. There is, when, it, when, it, when there is light and darkness, there is going to be opposition to the light from the darkness. There always is. It should not surprise us. We're not doing anything wrong if there's opposition. In fact, we know we're doing something right if there is opposition. 
I'm going to preach to myself whether you hear me or not this morning. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And this is it's just right down in the margin of your Bibles here. Ezekiel chapter 33. Pastor Jeremy and I just had a talk about this this past week. And it reminded me. I mean, what Paul says here to the Jews who will not listen is the same thing Ezekiel says uh, to his people uh, back in those days. We are watchmen on the wall. We are the ones when we see the enemy, we've got to shout out, the enemy is coming. If we do not, if we know disaster is coming, if we know the enemy is at our doorsteps and we say nothing, everyone who dies by the hands of the enemy, their blood is on our hands. But if we speak, if we give warning, if we say, behold, beware, look out, disaster is coming, your hope is in Christ. If they don't listen, at least their blood's on their hands and not ours any longer. This is what Paul says to the Jews who revile him and who will not listen in the synagogue. He says, your blood's on your own hands. I've done what I was supposed to do. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he left there. And he went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Just, just perspective. Sometimes it's so easy to miss these little things in Scripture as we're kind of just reading through. But what does Paul do? He preaches in the synagogue... We're going to find out some believe, but, but most begin to revile him and they kick him out of the synagogue. So what does he do? He starts a church right next door to the synagogue. That is gospel courage. These people hate my guts, but I got the only words of life that can be given, so I'm going to park right next door and continue to proclaim. And think about the boldness of this guy named Titius, right? Yeah, I'll open my house right next door to the synagogue. This is crazy stuff, but God is in the business of crazy stuff, amen? In fact, I just see God kind of smiling as he looks down. <laughs> Look at that. What do you think about that synagogue? <laughs> so now watch this. Verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So not everybody in the synagogue believed. Some got really angry and reviled and shook their fists and did this kind of stuff. And you know what? whatever it was. But the leader of the synagogue gets saved, tells his family, and the whole family starts coming to church right next door uh, to the synagogue at Titius Justice House. My prayer, this, this emboldens me so greatly. I prayed yesterday, and I'm going to be praying from now on, and I want you to join me in praying for the leaders of godless organizations with no fear of the Lord. 
begin to hear the gospel and get saved. I want leaders of the LGBTQIA, PFG, WXYZ, I want leaders of that community to get saved and start coming to church and repent of sin and lock arms with us and join arms with us in our fight for truth, our fight for God, our fight to return to a fear of the Lord. I want leaders of Planned Parenthood. I want, I want the souls of all the young unborn children to cry out and steal the sleep from the leaders of that organization until they are so afraid, until they come to the end of themselves and cry out for the only hope that they have, which is salvation in Jesus Christ. That song from last week that Scotty preached, man, that got me fired up. Because guess what? Their bows are bent towards us. It's time to start praying some uh, imprecatory psalms, amen? God, steal their sleep. Make them restless. God, uh, bring them to the end of themselves that they might know you and trust you and we might rejoice in their salvation. It happened before. Don't tell me it can't happen again. None is beyond the reach of the salvation of Yahweh through his son Christ Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. I mean, if he saved me, if he saved you, he could save anybody. Christmas, the ruler of the synagogue gets saved. You're going to love what happens next. And this is why we're parked in 18 for a second. Many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and we're baptized. What happens when you believe? You get baptized. It's just what you do in the New Testament. That's why we've got a cow thing over here. Because <laughs> when you believe in Jesus, we're going to dunk your head underwater. Because we're dying to sin and we're being washed new and being raised new in new life in Christ Jesus. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. All right, so all, there's a lot going on here already. I hope I've explained it well. There's a lot going on. And Paul evidently is a bit restless about some of the opposition he's getting because God sends him a vision. And in this vision, he says, do not be afraid. How many of you, you've seen Somebody you love, somebody that you knew used to go to church, somebody that was part of the, the, the Christian church, and you see them on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, or snappy, chatty, whatever it is out there now. And they're writing stuff, and you're just like, oh. But you don't say anything because you don't want to stir the boat, and you don't want to rock the boat. Paul has felt that same way. How much is too much? Maybe I'll just stick to safe spaces. God says, right? We know how this thing's going to end. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. And I don't want anyone here left because I wouldn't use my words. I don't need those anyway. Don't worry about it. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Some of you, 
I've made a lot of people uncomfortable the last six months here at Four Points. Brent, we understand what you're saying. Brent, we understand what you're doing. Brent, we know what you're saying is right, but we just don't have to focus so much time on these controversial... I think we do. I think we're in this mess because we stopped speaking 25 years ago about the nonsense that is now prevalent. Guess what? It's being worshipped on the high places of society now. I think it's time to not be silent I think it's time to call spades, spades. And I think it's time to say, hey, you guys have flipped this thing. What you think is up is really down. And what you think is down is really up. You're godless. You're immoral. And it's time to repent and come back to the Lord. It's what we need. True repentance. Well, Brent, the church is going to get smaller if you keep preaching that way. So be it. You know, it's a narrow road that leads to life. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. One of the greatest encouragements in all of Scripture. For I am with you. God started telling His people that way back in the Old Testament. When Moses dies, you remember Joshua? How can I fill Moses' shoes? I will be as I was with Moses so will I be with you. As I was with Paul, New Testament Christian, I will be with you. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So this church gets started right next door to the synagogue. The leader of the synagogue gets saved. His whole family starts coming to the church. Paul stayed 18 months teaching and preaching and showing the revealed mysteries of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, and we actually have a lot of extra biblical stuff on Gallio, he's kind of an important figure. He came from an important family. Many of you have heard of a, a guy named Seneca. Well, Gallio is Seneca's brother. And he hated being stationed in Corinth. In fact, we have one extra biblical resource that says he got sick. And he didn't feel like his sickness was because of anything bodily. He felt like his sickness was because of the... This is how bad the city was. He felt like his sickness was from the city itself. So for one year, he stayed on a boat in the harbor just so he didn't have to rule and lead from the city itself. So when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia... The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth to make a defense, it's okay to make a defense. The Bible actually says don't even prepare anything. The Holy Spirit will be your words in that time. And Paul is ready for the Holy Spirit to use him. But the Holy Spirit says, nope, I'm not even going to have to use you because I got Gallio here and he's, he, he's a guy that we would all like. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, oh, don't you wish we had leaders like this now? If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. 
But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. So basically, Gallio says, oh my gosh, shut up. I don't care. This is just words and ideas. You guys are floating around. You've redefined all the words. I can't even follow your sentences anymore. Deal with it yourselves. And he drove them out. And verse 17, watch this. Because after Crispus gets saved and leaves the synagogue, a new ruler comes to power in the synagogue, and his name is Sosthenes. And it is here in verse 17, they all seize Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So they went, but Paul did this and Paul did that. I don't care. Deal with yourselves. They beat this guy up right outside Galileo's office. And he just, eh. <laughs> But the big deal is, Sosthenes gets beat up. He's the new ruler of the synagogue. Why did they beat him up? Because he could not bring an argument against Paul that would cause Gallio to stop Paul's preaching. So the Jews were mad they couldn't stop Paul, and they beat up one of their own. And isn't that just the way evil in the world works? Don't they love the, the, the people on their team until they don't love the people on their team anymore? Cancel culture is a real thing. Uh, 1 Corinthians, let's go. I got 15 minutes. All right, now. Brad, that's a weird place to stop in chapter 18. Well, it's not, because let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the witness. Now, okay, timetables. Paul shows up. Incregalia, we, 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 there's all kinds of little tells to, to give us time periods, uh, both in the Bible and uh, extra-biblical resources. Paul shows up in Corinth somewhere probably around 50 A.D. Uh, church is planted, uh, most people say July 51. He stays there 18 months from that time. Uh, then he goes over to Ephesus where he stays for three years. He writes this letter back to them, probably 53, 80. Listen, this is just like 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. You know, if you've ever heard those people say, how can you trust the Bible? How can you read the Bible? That was put together hundreds of years after the fact. No, it wasn't. This church was planted within 25 years of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and was being instructed by apostolic instruction within that time period. This is God's word to his people. Paul called by the will of God... Is Paul doing his own thing? Did Paul sit down one day and say, you know what, I'd like to be an apostle? No, he was going to, to put Christians in prison when Jesus showed up in his life, knocked him off his horse and said, what are you doing? I told you, you're mine. Stop kicking against the goads, Paul. And he saves Paul. So it's by the will of God that Paul was called to be an apostle. We're going to read more about that in chapter 15. He was the least uh, among them. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. 
So what happens after Sosthenes gets beat by his own people? He says, man, the Jews are whack. I'm getting out of here. He goes next door to the church and gets saved. Paul now calls him a brother. This is gospel power. Two rulers of the synagogue coming to faith through the preaching of Paul and the planting of a church in the city. Yes, Lord Jesus, may we see it in Ackworth and in Cartersville and in Kennesaw and wherever else you may lead us to be at work in Ecuador. To the church of God. Now look, I've got 13 minutes. But don't don't pass this up. Who does the church belong to? Does it say the church of Paul? Does it even say the church of Corinth? No, it says the church of God, which is in Corinth. The church belongs to God. Now, this may seem silly to some of you, but on all of our order of operation charts that we have uh, in the back rooms of this office that kind of teach us how things operate and how things run. You're not going to find my name at the top of any of our lists. You're not going to find any other pastor's name. at the. T- you know whose name is at the top of our org chart? Jesus. Jesus' name is at the top of our org chart. And it may seem simple, and that's just paperwork, Brent, but it is a visible reminder to us. Even though we have to make some decisions around here, this is not our church. This church belongs to God, and it's God who will build his church. The church of God. By the way, that is not the denomination. <laughs> The last time I looked, there were like 30-some-odd denominations called Church of God, something, 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 in Christ, for Christ, by Christ, in the world, out of the world, blah, 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 blah. God's church that is in Corinth. Now, one other quick, just quick point. God's people, if we could see. You know, so many times we, we feel like the prophet And we cry under the juniper tree because we don't feel like there's anyone left. We don't feel like there's anyone out there who gets it. We don't feel like there's anyone out there who cares. We don't feel like there's anyone out there that takes it as serious as we do. God comes and encourages the prophet and says, I've got thousands that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Sometimes we just can't see. God loves to surprise us in moments. He doesn't let us see what he's doing behind the curtain a lot of times. And if we could see the millions and millions and millions of people that God has saved in the world right now rejoicing and honoring and taking his name seriously both as the gathered people of God in their locations and in their own lives and in their own families, we would be so encouraged this morning. Just know that that is what happens right now. We are the church of God in Ackworth this morning. And we are the church of God in Cartersville this morning. We are the church of God in Quito and and all the other cities we've planted in Ecuador. But we're even more than that. We are a universal. When you read the Apostles' Creed, don't not like the Apostles' Creed because this is, I believe, in one holy Catholic church. That doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means the word Catholic just means universal. 
God has a people on every continent, except maybe Antarctica, but there's probably even a church there, right? I don't know who all lives there, but if there's people there, there's a church, right? Because God's word spreads. He uses his church to go into all the world and make disciples. On every inhabited continent, there is the church, even in places of communism and great persecution. And my Lord, if one more balloon crosses into North America... I mean, this is getting nuts. This is Red Dawn kind of stuff, you know? I don't even remember what I was talking about anymore. Oh, there's even a church where people can be put to death. There are people meeting in basements and in catacombs. God has a people. We get to be his people locally here at Four Points. But if we are not his only people, he's got people everywhere. And he's got a plan for his people. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, oh, when we get to verse 10 of chapter 1 next week, you're going to see. You're going to scratch your head and go, how are these people sanctified? <laughs> but here's the thing. God makes us positionally what we are before we ever get there in reality. God says to this most jacked up church in all the New Testament that he has sanctified them. That means they have been set apart for a special purpose. This church with sexual immorality, they're suing one another. They're getting drunk off the communion wine. They are sanctified and set apart by Christ for a special purpose. We have a value in our staff called Pobody's Nerfect. <laughs> Office fans. It's so easy to point the finger at someone else. But we've got to realize that we're all sanctified by Christ positionally and working through that sanctification day by day from glory to glory afterward. We don't believe in Christian perfection. Obviously, sanctification doesn't mean Christian perfectionism. Because there's 16 more chapters to this book. We realize these people aren't perfect. But Jesus has set them apart, saved them for his purpose. And is calling them to, to greater understanding and greater holiness as they continue to walk after Christ. So sanctification is continuing to happen in their lives. But understand from verse 2, they are sanctified. And that is a gift of grace. Let's move. Hagazio, I think. Called to be saints together. Saints. With all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of Paul's favorite things to say in his introductions to his letters, grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is we get what we don't deserve. You have been sanctified and called saints. You don't deserve that. But it's what you get by God's grace. And out of that grace comes peace. 
No longer is there a war between you and God. No longer are you separated from him because of sin. Christ died in your place for that sin. That wall has been torn down and now there is peace and you can holistically, mind, body, soul, strength, walk with God again in the cool of the day. This is what it means. If you're struggling this morning, if you spent hundreds of dollars on uh, every resource out there, you just can't seem to find yourself, you can't seem to find your groove, you can't seem to end the anxiety or the, the, the pressures that you feel, a study on the peace of God would do you well. Because it ends all hostility and you find your true identity in your relationship with him and nowhere else in this world. Now, verses 4 through 9. I got four, almost five minutes, so let's read the whole thing. And then we're going to go back. Because this is, Paul bursts into thanksgiving. After he does this a very simple introduction, which by the way, this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We're going to see a little later. Most scholars believe his first letter written to the Corinthians, was lost to history because Paul said too many bad words and God didn't want to preserve that in the apostolic teaching. It's a true story. He actually apologizes to them for the harsh first letter that he wrote. Uh, Stop sinning, morons! Right, it was kind of that kind of letter. But this second Corinthian letter, which is our first Corinthians... He begins with a simple introduction, grace and peace to you, saints of God, sanctified in our Lord Jesus. And then he bursts right into Thanksgiving. Now again in verse 10, all the way to chapter 7, it's just problem, problem, problem. Stop doing this, stop doing that, stop doing this, stop doing that. But first, before he gets into any instruction, Paul Burst into thanksgiving. Why? Because the grace of God shows itself in the lives of God's people in many ways. Let's look. Let's read the whole thing. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Oh, which by the way, we get to talk about gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians. We get to talk about tongues and prophecy and interpretation. Some of you are going to be so freaked out, I can't wait. <laughs> I mentioned tongues one time in a sermon and some people we had been ministered to in our neighborhood got up and walked out immediately just because I mentioned the word. It's a Bible word. Don't get freaked out. We mention predestination all the time. That's a Bible word too. Tongues is a Bible word. We're going we're gonna to walk through it. You're going to like it. It's going to be good. Verse 7. Let's go back. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does the grace of God do? Go back with me and underline a few things. I don't think this is in your notes. What does the grace of God 
What does it do? How how is God's grace evident in our lives? Number one, first, the grace of God is given you. Underline that in verse uh, four. It's given to you. This is why Galatians is such an important book in the New Testament. This is why Ephesians 2, we quote all the time. It is not by works we are saved. It is by grace through faith in the work of Christ, not by our own works. If it was us doing the work, we could boast about how great we are and how we've achieved salvation. But that's not the way it works. It's grace through faith in Christ alone. It is the gift of God who lavishes his grace upon us. God's grace to us first is a gift. That's why John 3.16 can be the gospel in miniature. God loves so he gave. We believe we have eternal life. Second thing, it in the grace of God enriches us. So it's given to us. Then it enriches us. Those of you who have been saved for six months, 10 years, 20 years, think about how different your life is now because of the grace of God upon you that you have experienced. Right? It's that Romans 12, 1 and 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the knowledge piece. When we take every thought captive and cause it, make it submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, it changes. God's grace changes the way we think. We're concerned with his words and not our own words anymore. And that changes everything. It changes the way we talk. Our speech, it changes the way we see relationships. It changes the way that we say we're sorry. It causes some of us to say we're sorry for the first time to someone else whom we've offended. God's grace enriches us. It makes our lives better. It makes our lives worth living here, right now, in time and space. Not to mention eternity. God's grace is given to us. It it makes us better people than what we are. When you read your Bible, you should walk away a better person than what you were. If that's not happening, you're reading it wrong. Next thing, it's confirmed among you. The grace of God can almost tangibly be seen on a person's life. And one of the great things about coming together as a church, you know, sometimes if you're out there an island unto yourself, you can never know that you know that you know. But when you come together with God's people, the leadership that God places over his people, God's grace can be confirmed. Yes, you are saved. Yes, we allow you to be baptized and join the family of God here in this local expression in Ackworth. Yes, we identify God's gifts of grace on you. You should plant a church. You should be a pastor. You should be a small group leader. You should serve on a passion team. We can affirm and confirm. God's grace confirms in us. That we are in fact sanctified and set apart and saved by the grace of God. 
It is a reassuring thing in our lives that we have others to confirm God's work in us and through us. We need each other. Next, it is also the grace of God that sustains you. This is the pea and tulip for all you haters. <laughs> there is an end. And God is bringing that end to pass. And those of us who the grace of God has been given us and has enriched us and been confirmed in us, it's that same grace of God that will sustain us until that appointed end. It is not we who are holding on to God for dear life. It is His strong hand that holds on to us. It is God who sustains us through His grace to the end. Guiltless. I love this word here. Because again, when we get to verse 10 and move through these first several chapters, these are not a guiltless people. But in the grace of God that is given and enriches and is confirmed and sustains them, they are in Christ, in fact, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all going to stand before Him. And there's only one of two things you can say. God's not going to ask this question. It's just sheep and goats and here's your lines. But if God were to ask this question, why should I let you into heaven? There's really only two answers you can give. One answer is, because I worked really hard and I tried to be a good person and I think I did good enough for you to accept me. And the answer is, lightning bolt, your ash. The only acceptable answer, through Jesus Christ, your son, who lived the perfect life that I did not and died in my place for my sin. It is in Christ I am guiltless. I stand guiltless before you today. This is the work of Christ in our lives. Verse 9. God is faithful. Even in our faithlessness, He is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. And this is like a J.R.R. Tolkien movie beginning... Called into the fellowship. That word is koinonia. You saw it in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 in our vision series for our devotion piece. It is the participating and partaking together one of another. And it's what we should be doing in the church as we focus on our prayers and the teaching of the apostles and the breaking of bread. That's us fellowshipping together. But that fellowship, that koinonia is also between us and God himself. Every time we participate in communion, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, mentally we are remembering the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Physically we are taking bread and chewing and eating and we're drinking the juice there's a mental action, there's a physical action, but there's also a spiritual action as we participate in what, in the Lord's passion, 
in his work on our behalf. There is fellowship that we have with God, which is why we can have that grace and peace Paul spoke about in verse 3. We can walk with him again in the cool of the day, knowing that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. This is just the introduction to 1 Corinthians. Get ready for the next 38 weeks is going to be awesome. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I thank you for your word. May we stick to your word. Lord God, may we not turn. Your command to Joshua, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. Keep your eyes fixed. May we be that people in Ackworth. It is in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.